Well, chapter 16 is the last chapter in, the, in our study of the book of Romans. And one of the things you will see, and we'll go through it in that, in, in that uh, way in just a minute, are names, just lists of names. Uh, as I said last week, eight of the people identified here are women, which is, I think, important to comment on that. But I'm just curious. Let's just you know, ponder that a little bit. The Holy Spirit inspires this, so this is Scripture. God's word. Why would God write all these lists of people like that? I mean, almost everyone. There are people like Priscilla and Quo. We know who they are. We know who Phoebe is. But most of the rest, we have no idea who they are. So why, why would God, writing, Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Spirit, so we can ask the question this way, why would God want to include all these people that we have no idea who they are? For 2,000 years, most people don't even know who they are. Isn't that part of the credibility that you see in the Old Testament? It's all part of the traceability and credibility. That's certainly true for all the genealogies. Each one of the genealogies are very important. You know, vast majority of those people have no idea who they are. They're just names. nothing about them. That's right. There were names of women who were influential in promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ in some way. We don't know what they are, but they were worthy of knowing. Okay. That's very important, and that would be true of the men as well. Yeah. Would you agree with this proposition, that individual people are eternally significant to God? I mean, nobody's going to shake their head no on that. So you want to say yes. So we're just, we're, we're introduced again to something that is quite crucial. And, and Glenn mentioned that in the Old Testament, you see it. Individual people are important to God. Even if we don't know who they are, they're important to God. And from God's perspective, each one of the people in this long list of names is infinitely of value, of worth to him, and eternally significant to him. And when we get to heaven... Presumably, some of these people we'll rub shoulders with. Maybe we'll hear their stories. Maybe we'll hear more about them, which I suspect we might. So it's just a reminder that in God's vantage, from God's vantage point, no one is insignificant. And God chooses out of the, I mean, my, by this time, you know, we're about 57 AD or so. By this time, you would be talking about tens of thousands of people that would come to faith in Christ. In the early ch- couple chapters of Acts, within a few chapters, you're all, all of a sudden you're over 10,000 believers just in Jerusalem, if you accept uh, you know, the accounts there. So I'm just, I'm just reminded, as I was studying this again on Monday, I was just reminded again that each individual person is of value to God, and some God chooses to list in his word. Now, your name and my name, we're not in the word of God, but we are equally important to God. And if there is, we know one thing, and I just finished studying the book of Revelation in, in one of my classes. But uh, at the end of, of the, the, the book of, of Revelation, you have that reminder that there is a book. It's called the Book of Life. It's mentioned in the Old Testament a couple of times. It's mentioned in the New Testament a couple of times. The Book of Life is the record of every single individual that's put their faith in, in the Lord. That's going to, I don't know what that book looks like, but... I would imagine it's a pretty thick book. Or, you know, I don't know how we think about that when it's God who's keeping the records, but 
it's just it's it's just important for us to remember that God creates individual people in his image. That's the truth and the uniqueness of human human beings. And every one of those human beings is important to him. Some will reject him. Some want nothing to do with him. And that trajectory goes on into eternity, as you know, because they will be eternally separated from God. But these are not those people. These are people that represented the Lord in the church in Rome. I believe I mentioned this, but just if you're interested, in verse 5, you have a church in their house. This is the house of Aquila and Priscilla. Then you see in, in verse 10, the family of Aristobulus. There is another house church. If you look in verse 14, Asenachrius, Phlegon, Hermes, there is another church, another house church. The family of Narcissus in the middle of verse uh, 11, I believe it is. You see another house church. And then the last one is in verse 15. These are all related, Arlogius, Julia, Noris, and his sister. So you have, if we analyze this correctly, you have five house churches in Rome, in the city of Rome. Paul identifies them. Paul's aware of them. And so it's significant, again, that we're reminded in a, in a paragraph like this, that the early organization of the church wasn't in buildings like this. I mean, that was absolutely unheard of. That doesn't start until you get into the 300s, when Constantine legitimizes Christianity in the Roman Empire. So up until, you know, end of the 300, early 300s, people are continuing to meet in house churches. There are instances, I'm, I'm getting beyond what I need to talk about, there are instances where they would rent buildings and so on as you're in the second hundred, uh, second century, and into the third century. But let's focus here on this chapter. We did talk last week, and Fred reminded me of that. We did talk about, about Phoebe. She's mentioned in the first two verses. Uh, she is called two, there are two names for, excuse me, two labels, two titles of, of, of her, a servant of the church, and then at the end of verse two, a patron of many. There are two very important Greek terms that describe her role at Sancria, and Sancria is a little, little port city very close to Corinth in Greece. That's all that means. And most expositors, I think it's correct, understand she's the one who delivered the letter of the Romans to the Roman church. And so she's a very important person. Um, she, whether that term servant, which in the Greek is diakonos, we got a word deacon from that, which is an office in the local church, or at least it can be an office. Whether she had an office, I don't want to get into that debate, because that's been debated for 2,000 years. And we can't, you can't effectively settle it on one side or the other. So you just say, well, she may have been, she may not have been, we just don't know for sure. But that word patron is a, a Greek word, prostasis, which means she was financially someone who was supporting a lot of early <laughs> Christians in that church at St. Crea near Corinth. And so all I'm commenting on, that's the only thing I want to say. She's a very important woman. She plays a very important role. And she's someone that I am real interested in getting to. I really would like to meet her. There's a lot that's been written about her. She's referred to in extra-biblical literature in the very, very early church. And in verse 3, these are very familiar people to you as well, Priscilla and Aquila, or Prisca, which is a shortened uh, Greek for Priscilla. And it's very interesting 
they appear all over the New Testament. They're in the letter to Corinthians. They're in the book of Acts. Every time they are mentioned as a couple, her name is always first, which is highly unusual. In the ancient world, it's almost unheard of that in a marriage, the woman is mentioned first. And I, I can't explain why. I don't know why. I can't, but it's just, again, an important point about biblical Christianity in the Greco-Roman world. Biblical Christianity elevated women, unlike any other movement in history. And it is especially the writer Luke in his gospel. Luke mentions more women in ministry than any of the other gospels. And as I think I mentioned this last week, if you look at the beginning of Luke 8, it lists the financial supporters of Jesus' ministry, and most of them are women. And that's all, that's the only comment. This isn't feminism. This isn't anything about women's liberation. It's just saying, this is a fact of scripture. Women are all over the New Testament, which is highly unusual in the ancient world. And it's just, again, showing you the cultural impact Christianity was having on, on uh, the socioeconomic situation. Paul writes of them, they're my fellow workers. That's a beautiful word in Greek. It really is, but it's really one word, but translated fellow workers. In Christ Jesus, they played a major role. They're, they're mentioned in Corinthians. They played a very important role with Paul and Corinthians. They served in Rome, but they were kicked out of Rome during the reign of Claudius, during his persecutions. And, and they so they won't be in Rome too much longer. They're going to be booted out. But now they're still in Rome. Who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I not only give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. And that that goes back to some things that happen that you read about in the book of Acts. And then he mentions in verse uh, 5, read also the church in their house. So this is the, the first mention. It's actually one of the first mentions in the New Testament of the house church movement. So Priscilla and Aquila, who were tent makers, that was, that was their business, and Paul would, would be a part of that with them. But they had a house, and so their, their church, excuse me, their house became the location of a church, a house church. And that's what Paul's stating. And he goes on, greet my beloved Epinatius, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Now, we know absolutely nothing about this man except this. The first convert to Christ in Asia. Now remember, when Paul is using the word Asia, that does not mean China. You and I think of China, we think think of Asia, we think of China and India and Southeast Asia. That's not what it is. Asia was a Roman province in what today would be Western Turkey. So that's what he's telling us. So that's extraordinary because... Paul's first missionary journey is to Asia in the province of Galatia, and that was in AD 49. So presumably, this man came to faith before Paul's first missionary journey, which also means what? Someone else led him to Christ. Paul didn't, which is a good reminder. The New Testament is not a comprehensive account of the spread of the gospel. It's a selective account because there is so much else going on, but the scriptures focus on just a couple of key things for a lot of reasons that are important. But I just don't don't skip over these things. 
It's just an important observation to make. Now continue in verse 6. If you want to ask questions, stop me. Otherwise, I'm just going to keep going. Greet Mary, I'm in verse 6, who has worked hard for you. We have no idea who this is. It's obviously not any of the Marys related to Jesus' ministry. Greet Andronicus and Junia. Junia is a female name. My kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. Now, uh, we do know of Andronicus. He's mentioned in other, uh, a few other aspects in the New Testament. But they're husband and wife, and they, for reasons and, and content, we don't know, but they were in prison with Paul. Were they in prison with Paul in, in Caesarea, in, in Lystra, in Ephesus, places where he was in prison? We don't know, but they served in prison with him. Verse 8. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. That same phrase which was used of Priscilla and Aquila in verse 3 is used of Urbanus. And my beloved Stachus, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. That's very interesting, um, Apelles, who's approved in Christ. That's an unusual, that's from Dakimadzo. That means this guy was put under tremendous tests. For his faith. And he passed the test. What does that mean? We have no idea what that means. But for some purposes that only the Lord knows, Paul cites this man, Apelles, and he says he, he, he stands up because he's approved by Christ. He put through an egregious test, he passed the test, and he's approved. Continuing in the middle of verse 10, greet those who belong in the family of Aristobulus. Again, when Paul uses that, the assumption is this is another house church. But Aristobulus, this is really, really important because he was a slave. He was a slave, excuse me, he was a servant in the court of Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was the king of the Jews when Jesus was born because and there are a lot of connections that I won't get into. But he was, a, he was a very important, very important person in the court of Herod the Great and was related to Herod Agrippa, who was the son of Herod the Great, who will be the ruler of Galilee during the time of Jesus. So this Aristobulus, his family, and the house church that he hosted, he's an extraordinarily important individual. He was an important individual in the Roman Empire, who came to know Jesus and now hosts a church in the city of Rome. I know you don't get excited about biblical truth, but that's an exciting thing to see, that the gospel's penetrating even to the court that is part of the Herods, as well as, the, the, as, well as Rome, the, the court of, 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 uh, of Israel at that time. So it's just an extraordinary revelation, really. Greet my kinsman Herodian. The sense of that name is he's a Jew. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus, presumably another house church. Narcissus is a, a, a very important Greek name, but the history of him is he was a wealthy man who had freed himself from slavery. He bought his freedom, and he served both Claudius and later Nero. So Narcissus served in the court of two pharaoh, uh, two uh, Caesars in the Roman Empire. 
Claudius, and then his successor, Nero, and I know you know of Nero. Greet the workers in the Lord, these workers in the Lord, Tryphenia, Tryphosa, they are female names, they're two women. Greet the beloved Persis, another female name, who's worked hard on the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, there's another woman, who has been a mother to me as well. Okay, now we have no idea what that means, except that Rufus' mother helped Paul and treated him, related to him like a mother. And so Paul signals her out. She treated me, has been a mother to me as well. The fourth house church, grant, greet, I'm in verse 14, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who were with them. We have no idea who any of those people are. The final house church is in verse 15. Greet Philogis, Julia, note it's another woman, Norse and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Okay, he's done with his list. A repeat, eight of the people listed there are women. And he concludes, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. In the Greco-Roman world, you would not see a Greek or a Roman person walking down the street greeting somebody and kissing them. You would see that in the Middle East, but you would not see it in the Greco-Roman world. So Paul is telling these people in Rome, greet one another with a holy kiss. I've told you this, I think. So if I'm repeating it, just let me repeat it. If I didn't repeat this ever, it's an important piece of information. In the early in the early decades of the church, the various factions, political factions and religious factions in the Greco-Roman world began to attack Christianity and attack churches. And the attacks would be centered on three charges. The first charge was atheism, which is ludicrous, but atheism only in the sense that they never bowed down to the Roman gods. Now, most of the people in the Greco-Roman world come to Christ, then they turn their back on that idolatry, and so they stop bowing down to the various gods. That was one charge. Second charge was the charge of incest. And you think, why in the world would they level the charge against these Christians of incest? Well, here's one of the reasons. They're running around the cities of the Greco-Roman Empire, Greco-Roman world, kissing one another. Which is a high, and 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 you see this in the New Testament letters of Paul as well. They're calling one another brother and sister, so they're hugging each other and hello, brother Fred. See you tomorrow. Hi, Fred. You ready to have coffee tomorrow, brother? I'll see you tomorrow, brother. You know these kind of crazy things that are very common for you and me today, but back then was that nobody was acting like that. But it reflects we're in the family of God, and we're brothers and sisters in Christ. And the third charge, which was the most persistent and most effective, was cannibalism. Why would they be charging the church with cannibalism? They're eating the body and drinking the blood of another human being. Communion, the Lord's table, Eucharist, whatever your tradition calls it. And so those charges, and so what Paul is saying here is part of the reason why the critics of the early church would level those charges, and they were very effective in terms of some of the courts and some of the charges, because remember, you had each 
province had a Roman governor, so the Roman governor would treat things differently than the governor in the other province. But here's part of that evidence that was so atypical in the Greco-Roman world. People running around hugging and kissing each other, calling one another brother and sister. Who were the triers of that? Who were what? The triers of those accusations. You mean who would do the prosecution, you mean? Yeah. Well, a, a Roman, a, a, the Rome, the Rome had set up uh, the Roman codices, they're called, but Rome had set up a due process procedure in law. And so there would be prosecute, I use language we use, a prosecuting attorney, which would be an officer of the governor. But then there would have to be witnesses brought, and it would have two years to show up. So, but I mean, it would be a it would be a Roman official who would be responsible to the Roman governor of that particular province, wherever it's occurring. Am I answering your question? Yeah, I just didn't know if they had a formal court system. Oh, my, very much so. Very much so. That's one of the great gifts. Rome gave the Western world jurisprudence. Very, very, well, canon law is church law. But, but yeah, I mean, it was very, very important. That's a very important legacy of the empire. And due process procedures. Glenn, did you have a question? Yeah, what was the first church? What was that? Catholicism was two or three. What was the first one? Uh, atheism, in other words, which is really kind of silly when you think about it, but only in the sense that they would not bow down to the Roman, uh, the Greco-Roman gods, which the cities were just filled with all the idols and you know, what, temples and so on. Yeah, Ron? Um, I might have missed it earlier, but in uh, both uh, 14 and 15, you said those are church house church houses, but there's no reference to house in either one of those. No, uh, the, and I, I, it's a good question. The, the general idea is where you see the word family, that this is the family of, they are hosting one of these house churches. That's, that's, a, that's a reasonable explanation of why he's putting it that way, organizing it that way. I'm not sure that's something I'd die for, go to war for, but it seems reasonable that's what he's doing here. Because Rome, uh, well, you know this, Rome was a very, very large city, about a million people at this time. And so you would expect more than one house church. And this is still early. I mean, this is only about 57 AD. That's only 20 years after Jesus, a little over 20 years after when Jesus went back to the Father. So it's, it's not, but it's giving you an idea that even in the Roman capital city of, of Rome, uh, capital of the empire in Rome, you have thriving churches that are growing. And that's probably what Paul is doing. He's organizing these greetings around the house churches. Does that answer your question? He's almost done. He does this, he, I'm back to just talking about Paul now. As he does in almost all of his letters, he issues like a final warning or final caution to these churches. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. So two commands there, two verbs in the imperative mood. Watch out and avoid them. Watch out for what? Be alert. You could also translate that, be on guard. Two things. What are the two things you're to be alert? 
watching for, alert, you know, be, be very careful about. People who cause division and people who are creating obstacles who are teaching something contrary to sound doctrine. So there are, there are two areas of warning, two things to be very sensitive to. Divisiveness in the church and doctrinal issues. Why is he alerting them, warning them, telling them to watch out for people who cause division? Why would that be an important issue? Now, this isn't a hard question, because either you didn't hear it or you're not paying attention. So I'll, I'll assume you didn't hear the question, so I'll repeat it. Well, they they do have false teachers. They're warned about false teachers all the way through the Bible. That's right. That's right. I mean, because false teachers are teaching that which is contrary to doctrine. Really be alert to that. Absolutely. But why be alert to people who cause divisions? When you're Gentiles and Jews. Pardon me? Okay. You the, na- the natural and uh, immediate source of division would be Jew and Gentile and all the cultural differences and so on. Where is time the growth of the church? Disunity and dysfunction are lethal to a church. Are you familiar with at all even a cursory understanding of church history? One of the aspects of church history is division. I had, a, I had a friend who used to define the typical Baptist church is. This is, I'm going to be really unkind. He said, you know what? The Baptists have a special gift they give at Christmas. It's a doll. You wind up the doll, and it divides. <laughs> Automatically. Isn't that a terrible joke? But if you know, it's that if you know anything about the Baptist movement in history, they have the tendency, because it's a congregational form of government, church government, very independent, and you have a disagreement, well, I'm just going to go form another Baptist church across the street. And if you ever travel in the South, in the typical city, there are so many Baptist churches, and you go to the phone directory, nobody uses the phone directory anymore, but, you know, you Google. Baptist churches in Montgomery, Alabama, pages and pages of them, because that, this is a very independent very independent-minded, and I'm not criticizing that, but Paul is sensitive to something. One of the major themes of his letter is unity of the church, and that which causes disunity and dysfunction is harmful to the gospel. And so it's just, it's fascinating to me that as he's, he's this final alert, if you will, this final warning, that's one of the things he says. Who's responsible for that? The leaders of the church. You leaders, be real sensitive about those who cause division. My pastor, my boy, is really sensitive to that. Because he had, you know, he has, uh, with, with things that his father did who was in ministry, he saw the effect disunity can have in the local church. Now we're not, you know, what we're what we're talking about here are things that that can become they seemingly insignificant at first, but they can cause very significant hostility between members of the church, which then causes distrust, which causes that lack of unity and commitment to the mission of the church, and then 
the end result is you're either going to have a church divide, split, or you're going to have significant numbers of people leaving. And that's that. That's the kind of thing in leadership you have to be really sensitive to that. Tim, is there a scripture that deals with being of one spirit? Well, Paul has a lot to say about it in Ephesians four. Jesus has a great deal to say about it in High Priestly Prayer in John chapter seventeen. Jesus even prays for unity, that the church, that you know what is occurring, will will remain unified. Um, Paul has a lot to say about it in in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that the unity of the church, and really he's he's not so much focusing on an organizational unity, but as a spiritual unity of of what the mission is, and that that is so uh, that's so important, and that um, well anyway that, that's something that church history tells us that this becomes a really significant issue. And let's get really cosmic about it. If you're Satan and you hate the church, which he does, what would be one of your most effective tools and weapons? Create disunity. Because when there's very significant disunity, the mission of the church is effective. And as Paul will say this, he says, especially the Corinthians, I'll, I'll paraphrase this point. We should be able to show the world how to disagree and still love each other. We haven't always done a good job of that. I think the other item, create obstacles contrary to doctrine, is again that sound doctrine is absolutely central to Paul's a whole approach to the church. The thesis of First uh, Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus is sound doctrine produces godly living. He says sound doctrine all over the place, the pastoral epistles. It's really important to him. And it should be important to us. And this is a strong sentiment I have. You may not disagree, but you may not agree. But in my judgment, in 2022, a church that does not teach sound doctrine is not doing its job. That is a very, very important. Because if the local church is not teaching sound doctrine, where else are people going to hear it? Where else are they going to learn it? And that's hard because doctrine is not necessarily easy. All right. <clears throat> For such persons, who? The people create division, create people who are promoting uh, doctrine that's not sound. Do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And I love this. By, I read from the ESV translation. I love how they translate this. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Every time in the Bible when I see the word deceive, I circle it. Because that is Satan's most effective strategy. Jesus says of Satan, he is a liar, a liar from the beginning. And his tool is always a tool of deception. Deception creates an illusion of truth, but it's not. And so you shift from the truth to that illusion of truth, and you are deceived. You are buying into a lie. And as you know, and we know we've talked about that in this class, that is exactly the strategy used with Eve that Satan employed in Genesis 3. The Bible says Eve was deceived. She believed a lie. Lie number one, God does not have my best interest heart. Number two, God is hiding something from me. Number three, I will eat and become like him. All three of those are sourced in Satan. 
And it was very effective. And that is a very effective, just think about it. How many people believe God does not have my best interest at heart? God, God is holding back something from me. So I am going to go ahead and follow this deceptive lie, and I'll find out what the truth is. It never works. Deception promises something it can't deliver. And that's what Paul's saying. They deceive the hearts of the naive. I'm not sure that's the best translation, but naive, I think you know what that means. It essentially means the spiritually naive, those who have not been taught well, they are easily deceived. Someone who's not taught well is easily deceived and believes this is the truth, not this. This is what you're telling me the truth, but I kind of think this seems like the truth. This is the truth. And so you shift what the truth is to this because you don't know what the truth is. And that's, that again, <laughs> a church that is not teaching its people sound doctrine is not doing its job. It leaves its people naive and untaught, so they're very open to deception. Where does the Holy Spirit come out of play here? The Holy Spirit can only function if you, if you expose yourself to his truth, which he inspired. You can ask the Holy Spirit for guidance. Yeah, of course. But, but my point, Fred, is in terms of doctrine and doctrinal truth, he, osmosis is not his means of communicating truth to you. He wants you to pick this book up, study it, and internalize it. Then he uses that. That's another important point, is studying God's Word informs conscience, so that conscience then the Holy Spirit uses in helping us to be the thermometer of how we make decisions in the normal areas of life. I'm expounding on this more than you want to hear, but that is, the Holy Spirit does not, does not communicate truth by osmosis. He communicates it through his Word that he inspired. And so, again, that's why, uh, I won't say it again. I was going to repeat something I've said already, so I'll stop it. <clears throat> Verse 19. For your obedience is known to all. Which is a wonderful comment about these little churches. So I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. So, you know, again, he's alerting them. This is about the doctrinal issue, why they are somewhat susceptible. And so the counsel is be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Innocent, stay away from it. Wise to what is good. So, if... <laughs> Wise, to be wise, or, or wisdom as a noun. Where do you find wisdom? How do you become wise? By sitting in a rocking chair and say, okay, Lord Jesus, make me wise. I'll just sit here till I'm wise. Now, that's a silly, I hope you got the exaggeration of silliness there. No, you start saturating your mind and heart with God's word. Solomon says it so piercingly. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom starts with a person. God, you getting to know God and what he's revealed, which begins the process of wisdom. 
And wisdom has a cluster of words around it in the Old Testament. I knew I wouldn't finish Romans 16 today. <laughs> if you look at the Old Testament concept of wisdom, and you look at the wisdom literatures of the Bible, Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and select Psalm, you see the word discernment, See the word prudence. You see the word understanding. I think that's all. I'll go through. I'll never get through all these. But if you you take me when he says be wise, all of these words understanding is a it's it's from a Hebrew word, but understanding since translated means I am beginning. I am beginning to gain the understanding intellectually and spiritually of what is a priority to my God. I'm understanding him. I'm understanding his priorities. I'm understanding his ethical system and standards and virtues. And discernment is an enormous skill of wisdom because discernment, discernment is you're gaining insight into the consequences of your choices. Because so many people just impulsively act. Don't even think about the consequences of what they choose to do. That's not wise. The Bible calls that person a fool. <laughs> you just act impulsively. That's not wisdom. So discernment is it's a tremendous skill for a living. But if you saturate your mind and heart with the word of God, God has already told us so much, given us such enormous insight into the consequences of what we choose to do. And then prudence, it's a skill. To, to be prudent is a skill in why, in, well, that's almost redundant, but in wisely thinking through everything that's involved in making a decision. Sometimes prudence is you, you make a list and you say, here are the positive and here are the negatives of what I'm, that's a prudent way of analyzing decision making. So these are skills, and that's what Paul is saying. Be be wise is what is good. How are you gonna be, how are you gonna gain wisdom to be able to determine and discern what's good? Saturate your mind and your heart with his word. It doesn't come from osmosis. The Holy Spirit doesn't sit, you sit in your rocking chair and the Holy Spirit makes you wise. If that's your approach, you're absolutely an idiot, because that's not gonna happen. And the innocence is the innocence of that is you learn to stay away from, like an innocent child, you stay away from that which is evil. What's the difference between discernment and prudence again, quickly? Well, they're very, like all these words of, especially with really hard, but discernment is that insight into the consequences. Prudence is that skill of, of weighing all the options that are a part of making a decision. And I, I, I illustrated it by, you know, you have to make a choice. What are the positives? What are the negatives of making this decision? Insight versus action. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the, one of the things, Ron, that happens is a prudent person therefore becomes a discerning person. Can't have one yeah, the yeah no, that's right. That's right. That's why, you know, you, a five-year-old has none of this. A five-year-old just lives an act, or a three-year-old. You know, I'm watching my, uh, with my uh, 
youngest grandson. He's six months old now. And, you know, yeah, he has no discernment, nothing. He just, his life revolves around eating, sleeping, and playing. That's his life, you know. And it's just, that's okay. But, it's not, but you know, hopefully when he's 20, well, today I'm not sure 20-year-olds have this either. You know, you got to be about 35. Then you start to have this type that was a joke. He's kidding, but you know what I mean. But you want your children as they're getting in. I mean, I'm not sure a lot of teenagers have much of this. Often teen, teenagers are still very impulsive. They just act. But you certainly want them to develop these skills. But you want them to develop these skills that are sourced in God's revelation to us. Not Oprah, not Dr. Oz, not, not all these other guys and gals on TV. And that, that's not wisdom. Innocence, stay away from it. That's my view. I don't know if you guys agree with me. That's not the source of wisdom. That's worldly wisdom. You don't need that. Oh, anyway, I love verse 20. Because in the midst of these warnings, in the midst of these these challenges to these churches in Rome. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's a comforting, theological, true statement. Because Satan, remember, don't forget, the word Satan as a title means adversary. That's what Satan means. And Satan is the chief adversary of God, and therefore your chief adversary. You think God doesn't have your best interests at heart at times? I'm telling you, I guarantee you this. Satan does not have your best interests at heart at all, ever, in any circumstances. So he's just reminding the people at Rome, and church at Rome, therefore you and me as well, that the God of peace... God is a God of order, God of stability, God of shalom. He is going to crush us. That's Genesis 3.15 fulfilled. Because Genesis 3.15 is a promise made after the horrific fall of humans into sin. From the seed of the woman will come one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's a promise. And Paul is reactivating that promise. And of course, Ultimately, when will that happen? In Revelation chapter 20. After the final rebellion of Satan at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, it tells us Jesus will throw him into the lake of fire. And Satan will be done. So <coughs> all Paul is doing, <coughs> excuse me, all Paul is doing here is reminding, Reminding the churches there in Rome, and for you, and reminding you and me, we're reading it now. Is Satan going to lose? He's going to be crushed and defeated by God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, Timothy, my fellow worker. You know he is greets you, Lucius, Jason, Sosipater, my kinsmen. They all are from Corinth. Tertius, who wrote this letter, uh, Tertius is the amanuensis. Don't you love that word, amanuensis? Isn't that a great word? He's Paul's secretary. All of Paul's letters are dictated, and Tertius was the one who was writing it down. And, and Paul doesn't always tell us who it is. He tells us who it is. 
Gaius, who's host to me and the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. By the way, Erastus, let me tell you, this is kind of interesting. In excavations done outside the theater in Corinth, the first century theater, theater Paul would have, they found, they found a, a, a very, very important um, uh, limestone pavement that has Erastus, the treasurer of Corinth's name on it. Yet to this Erastus, he had come to faith in Christ. And Paul highlights him here. Now the doxology. Paul just can't help himself. He got he got to throw out a doxology of praise. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now been disclosed through the prophetic writings that have been made known to all the nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. And that long, that long cluster of phrases knitted together. Mystery, the word mystery, is that which was hidden is now revealed. He's talking about all of the truths about the coming of Jesus and the Messiah, all the prophetic stuff that's in. It's kept secret for long ages. When Jesus comes, all of it starts to make sense. It's revealed. Now it's made known to all the nations according to the command of the eternal God. That's what he's doing. He's the apostle of the Zetro. He's making this mystery known. Travel all over the Mediterranean world, planting churches, making this known. You and I are still doing that. We're still in phase four of Christ's strategic plan. Take it to the nations. The only wise God takes you back to verse 19. Be wise. The only wise God. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You want to be wise? Start with God. You know, I've been in this class for about a decade now. Very, very rarely have we been able to say we are now done with the book of the Bible. Do you have any questions on the book of Romans? So I don't hear the entire book, but I always wanted to ask you specifically where you are with Romans eleven twenty six. When you know that all of this will be saved, all of this will be saved. I asked you this before. I don't know. I asked every pastor that. Well, it's it's the culmination of chapters nine, ten, and eleven. At the end of that, very central item of of what Paul is dealing with. I've got to solve this problem. Why do my people? not put their faith in Jesus as the Messiah. And he answers that, chapter 9, 10, the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But then he, he talks about the remnant. And he says that God, in, in spite of that, God has always has a remnant. He is an example. Elijah is an example, etc. But then he says, you know, in God's plan, and he quotes a whole bunch of Old Testament scriptures, that when Christ comes back, all of us will be saved. There's only one way to understand. Number one, Israel is not the church. The church is not the new Israel. This is ethnic, national Israel. These are the Jews. And secondly, it can only mean this. It can't mean anything else but this. The Jews who are alive when Jesus comes back, in the words of Zechariah chapter 12, verse 13, will look upon him whom they pierced and believe. 
So the Jews that are alive when Christ comes back in the second coming, Revelation 19, will, will embrace the proposition, he is my Messiah. And so all that they do, and that is part of what is in, in the, the 70th week of Daniel and chapter 9 and, and some of the prophets, Zechariah particularly, and of course what I think is also in Revelation 19. And those Jews who are alive when Christ comes back, they will be part of the population of the millennium kingdom of Christ. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So is the definition of all Israel and those of the Jews that were alive. When Jesus comes back in the second coming, again, I think that the, the key connection in prophecy is Zechariah 12, I think it's verse 13. They will look upon him whom they pierced and believe. And so that, that, that and, and Ron, that is so important too in all of the, the, coven, the covenants of the Old Testament. Abrahamic Davidic and New Covenant, which all first uh, 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 committed to the, to, to the Jews, to Israel. God has to fulfill those promises. And he can only fulfill those in space-time history, and it's going to be wrapped around the return of Christ and setting up the money. Okay? Thank you. I'm going to pray and let you guys go. Father, thanks for the, the uh, months that we spent in the book of Romans. Uh, I love to teach the book. It's the most important doctrinally in the, in the Bible. It, it helps us to understand so much about what you're doing, why every human being stands condemned, why the importance of sending Jesus, why, why he offers salvation, where there's there now, now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, 1, and just the incredibly important discerning difference that we gain between justification, sanctification, glorification. And he answers that dilemma of why Israel, what happened to Israel? Why didn't they trust Jesus? Why didn't they see him as Messiah? Is God done with the Jews? Resoundingly, he says, no, he is not done. They have a future. He will fulfill his covenant promises. And then the justified life, what does that look like? That's what 12 through 16 answers. Lord, you're into the business of transforming people. You're in the business of transforming people in the image of your son. And it starts with putting faith in Jesus. His death, burial, and resurrection is for us. We thank you. I trust everyone here and is listening online has already made that important decision. So, Lord, dismiss us with your blessing today. Help us as we're preparing for the celebration of Christmas in a few weeks. And just to be reminded of how central Jesus, what it means that he came, what Emmanuel means, why the incarnation is central to our beliefs. God became man. He added to his deity humanity and served us by dying on the cross. That's the message of Christmas. Okay, Lord, give us a good rest of this day in Christ's name. Amen.